What's happening, runners? Welcome back to another episode of The Running Podcast, the podcast where we talk everything running. The highs, the lows, the ugly bits, and of course, everything in between. My name is Lloyd. I will be your host for today's episode. And today we are sitting down and talking with Head of Athlete Innovation at On Running, Jordan Donnelly. On today's show, we chat with Jordan live from the On HQ in Zurich. And we discuss his journey as a 149-800 meter athlete and where he started with the sport of athletics, how he's lived all over the world working for different brands within the sports industry, how the opportunity to work with On Running came about and what his vision is with On and the brand and why they're working differently to other brands in the space right now. Now, if you do want to follow along with what we're doing at Trackster and this podcast, please do head over to our Instagram and drop us a follow. And also check out our website, trackster.com, where we put all of our longer form content from our YouTube channel. You can register for our running newsletter and you can find all of our podcast episodes on there as well. And finally, to support this show, please do leave us a review, which is now available on all platforms. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Jordan Donnelly. All right, welcome to the show, Jordan. How are we doing? All good. Thanks for inviting me on. It's uh, pretty exciting to see the rise of both Trackster and On merge and come together here. So uh, yeah, excited to, to speak to you. Yeah. Well, I'm absolutely honoured to be uh, to be mentioning the same breath of your of your trajectory at On. So if we if we're on that playing field, I'll definitely tell you that at the end of the first tour. Um. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to start somewhere, and yeah, here we are. Absolutely, absolutely. So where are you in the world right now? Uh, now I'm back in the headquarters in Zurich. It's the on headquarters. Uh, we were founded here, well, in the Swiss mountains, a couple of hours away. And then, yeah, this is where our headquarters is. So we just opened a huge new building for about 2000 employees. And, uh, yeah, this is where I am now, which is a little bit rare considering it's the middle of the season, but yeah, it's good to be home, home. Yeah. And how, how long have you been based out in Zurich? Now you're home. Yeah. So I've been in Zurich for about two years now, just under two years. So I joined on right after the Tokyo Olympics in August, 2021. So yeah, it's like 22 months or so. Yeah, based in Switzerland. So yeah, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Where did you move from? Was you based in the UK? No, so I've I've not been living in the UK since about 20, 2010 maybe. So like the past 13 years I've been living in Germany, Vietnam, uh, in the US, China, Germ- Germany again, now in Switzerland. So, yeah, with a few different shoe brands, different departments, and so on, I've been moving around. So, yeah, even though the UK is my home or like where I'm from, it's been almost half of my life, which I've been being away. Yeah. Love that. We'll get into your your journey and your travels and, and your professional life, Jordan. But I want to go right back to the start. We do this with all of our guests. I want to understand how did you get into sport? First of all, your first memories of it. And then how did that eventually transition into athletics? Oh, yes. So, I mean, as you can probably tell by the accent where I come from, um, in the northwest from Liverpool or Birkenhead, it's just over the River Mersey there. They say when you're born, you're born with a ball at your feet. I mean, everyone where we come from plays football and it was no different for me. So, yeah, I was playing football growing up, um, pretty good level on some school of excellences and some different... um, different clubs and then being a bit of a, a shorter skinnier guy didn't quite make the the fizzy levels you need as a teenager when it comes to the the yts stage so at the age of about 17 i switched from um playing majority football to switching over to doing a little bit more running and track i mean i always did cross country in high school growing up um so yeah switching to the track that's when i made that jump and then 
onto uni, going on the track team. I think I started uni with a, a 159-800 just underneath that barrier. And four years later, I was on 149. So it was um, quite a steep trajectory, maybe with my growth as well. But um, yeah, that's where I started and where, where I got to, essentially. And which university was you at? Was it Liverpool? No, I went to Brunel in West London. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Just down the road. Yeah, so I'd closer to Heathrow Airport than uh, Central London. But yeah, we went to Bru- I went to Brunel and it was a um, really nice experience, you know, more the people who you meet and so on. And it was definitely a catalyst in all things life, career, sport. Yeah. yeah that's part, a part of West London is uh, South West London is such a, it's such a mecca for sport, especially athletics, you know, with that, with universities like Brunel and, and St. Mary's. Did you have that Bucks experience? Did you, did you have any Bucks experience you want to talk us to us about? What's your most memorable Bucks experience? It doesn't have to be athletic because we know how crazy Bucks get. Oh, I mean, depends what you want to... Sp- is it like after parties of cross-country in Aberdeen or where were you sterling? I can't remember all of them. You know, I lost way too many brain cells at those uh, those events. But um, yeah, but books, was, it was good. You know, you get to test yourself against the next level. And for me, it was, it was cool as well because the level before, like English schools, I made a couple of times, but yeah, I was like the smallest guy in the race and it was never... I could never really do any damage, but... By the time I got to uni, I, I had a nice progression. And by the end, I took home a medal at Bucks, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah, we got fourth twice in the relay. I was always stuck on a four by four leg at the end. Uh, so to finally finish with a bronze medal, it was pretty cool to finish out the uni career. Yeah. Excellent. That's a breath. Brilliant. I love that. And yeah. uh, just off camera before we, we got into the, the recording, I referenced your T-shirt. Do you want to show? So we will be putting this on YouTube. So show me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Here we go. It's it's Oliver Hoare. Shout out to Ollie because he hates going to Eugene. So his, his brother's actually visiting us tomorrow here in Zurich. So maybe he should have wore it tomorrow. But yeah, so we've got Ollie Hoare. And then up here, we got this from a little office. These are his spikes from his 347 mile in Oslo last year. Australian national record. And a cool story about this spike. So Ollie ran the spikes on a Thursday. And by then, we only had like literally one pair in that size. And then Dathan took them. Next morning, went to Paris, and George Beamish ran 5,000 in the Paris Diamond League in the same pair of spikes um, and qualified for the World Champs in Eugene. So, yeah, it's a prototype, which, um, yeah, there we go. So, Ollie, Ollie is with us here. Yeah. Speed in that one pair of shoes, blimey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, before we get into your professional life, where you've, where you've all seen, um, you know, grow, grown in the industry and you've got to where you are today. I want to talk, I want to talk about your running. We, we've just touched on it there with Bucks and you mentioned there that you worked your 800 meter PB down to the 149. So very established athlete in your own right. Talk us through your experience as a club runner in the UK. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure if it still exists like the McDonald's league or the young athletes league. It was known at the time. Different night, you know, similar thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that was always like, um, trying to make the team. So I used to run for a Wirral AC. Um, and we had a pretty good pretty good team. We'd usually make like the national finals and so on. And there was a guy in my team, Chris Smith, um, and he was like secondary in the schools and he was like this big, fast guy. Um, so I, I went down the club training with him and uh, I was like training with him, no problem. But then he'd run at 800 and like 201 and I'd run it in like 220. I'd be like, 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, how does that work, you know? He's like, oh, you just need to train with me more. So I did, like, one year training with him before I would have been, like, maybe 17 then. And then the next season, I ran, like, 159. I was like, wow, like, it worked, you know? So, yeah, going to the McDonald's League on the team bus the Sunday morning with, with the whole team, the camaraderie and so on, um, it kind of gave me, like, this um, first glimpse into into athletics. Um, I mean, doing it at school as well at St. Anselm's and... Yeah, it was really cool to be part of the team. And um, yeah, from there, just like the hunger within, just, you know, the feeling when you're flying up the back stretch of the 800 on the second lap and everyone's dying. But, you, you know, that hunger, that feeling is uh, kind of what ignited a little bit the um, the spirit in me. And with track, it, it's up to you, right? It's only, like I said, I used to play football. In football, you have to rely on 10 other people. But in track, it's, it's only you. If you do the work, you're going to see a good result like I said, with this huge jump I made. And if you don't, then you're not going to see it. And on the second lap of the 800, no one can help you but yourself. So yeah, that's where it all started. And um, just kind of the um, the will to keep improving and then being fascinated by the Olympics and all of this type of thing was um, just kept me going, yeah. It opened a new door, I would say. But Jordan, just before we carry on this next question, I'm just going to let my dog out because it Go ahead. Yeah. One second, mate. That'll be some work to do to so actually edit for once. So, in terms of your your athletics, you mentioned there that you got a Bucks medal, sub one fifty performer. But what would you say your proudest running achievement is? And the reason why I ask it like that is because if there's one thing I've learned from talking to some of the fastest athletes in the world, it's not always oh I won this medal. Sometimes it could be a little bit more holistic. But what's the thing that jumps out for you in your running career? Um, the proudest one. It was probably. 2016 like the olympic trials the national champs because it was the first time that actually my whole family come and watch me race after years and years um and in 2012 it did the, also the trials and i don't remember a single thing about it i was just like thrown in there it was two minutes and it, i can't tell you anything which happened so in 2016 four years later when i qualified i was like i'm gonna really you know take everything in uh the whole stadium and uh my family there and the whole race and so on. And I mean, it turned into a sit and kick and it, I did quite good, but, um, yeah, that was where I feel like I reached the top, like performance wise for myself and also just like ev everything around it, which I put into it. And I was living in the U S at the time. So I came back and, uh, yeah, I think it was actually like maybe the day after the Brexit vote and I voted and, uh, obviously got kicked out wherever, but, um, yeah. That was that was then in 2016, and it was special. I had like my old high school teachers there, and uh, they go every year anyway to watch. So, yeah, that was probably the, the proudest moment here. And you're running. What does your running look like today? Today it's a 30 mile week followed by an 80 mile week followed by a 20 mile week. I'm kind of constantly in this like 15, 20, 15, 35k shape, and. I actually have a streak now for like 20 years of sub to 800 meters every single time. I think, I don't know, I've done like 120 of them or so. Um, so the the thing is when we were in uni, we had to say, what could you run any day, any time if you were challenged? And for me, it was a sub to 800 meters. So yeah, I like to think of constantly maintain that, that level, I would say. That's, that's going to get harder and harder though, my friend, as you get older and older. <laughs> is, yeah. I'm like 36 this year and it's, uh, yeah, doing a few 200s, sub 30 is, you feel it, yeah. <laughs> that's, 
that back straight starts to fit a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, love that. But you mentioned there about the sort of limbo where your mileage is up and down. I'm, I'm going to assume that's because of your job and the traveling. Yeah, so especially now with basically finalizing everything for the Paris Olympics next summer. Uh, so we're trying to squeeze every last insight and testing out of it. So we do obviously track, road, trail, triathlon, and uh, now tennis. Um, so there's a lot of traveling with athletes on training camps, competitions to really test all the products with them. And yeah, it means probably right now, I mean, this year, maybe 75% of the time is spent um, yeah, traveling with athletes. So yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about your your job role uh, on Jordan because um, I've met a few people from various brands that work on the innovation teams, and I'm always just fascinated by by their brains because it, it, you know you guys are literally behind helping athletes run faster, jump further, hit a better forehand in the t- on the tennis court, whatever it may be. But let's just talk what you did prior to that. You mentioned obviously you was at uni, but you know I, I did a little bit of research on yourself, and it was actually difficult to do research on yourself. It's easy when it's like an Olympian because you just go on the internet and there's pages and pages. So I had to ask a few tailored people and one of the people did mention that you used to work for Runners World in London. So yeah. it's an idea of what that looked like up until you joined on running. Yeah, so um, when I was in uni, I was studying like more business economics and I needed to do a, an internship. Um, so yeah, I was trying to earn a little bit of extra money when I was living in London and I was working in a running store, uh, Runners World. Uh, and also the London Marathon store in Covent Garden. So having seen like, you know, a lot of consumers firsthand every day, serving them, trying to sell them with like the latest Asics Nimbus or whatever the, the shoe was at the time. Um, it actually was a bit of a blessing in disguise because when I applied to, to Adidas for an internship, they were actually looking for somebody who has that face to the consumer kind of experience because a lot of people in the headquarters, they live in this bubble where they never faced the real end consumer. So yeah, they were looking for interns basically who had been working in running stores or leading run clubs or whatever to really give insights of what the end consumer is looking for. So yeah, during uni, um, working in a running store, then I did an internship in Adidas in Germany um, for about six months. And my boss was, I was really lucky. He was the guy who invented Adi Zero uh, in Japan. He was a Japanese guy, Koei Hajio. And yeah, he was my boss and he's a real shoe craft maker. He was making the first Adios and so on for Harley Gebrselassi for this world records back in the day. Um, yeah, so he taught me a lot of stuff. And then I got another internship in Puma. Um, again, similar type of things, but making the shoes for the Formula One drivers. So it was in Puma Motorsport, Motorsport and making shoes then for, yeah, it was like the Ferrari Formula One team. Um, Red Bull back in the day, like with like David Coulthard, I think was in the team back then. Um, yeah, so the product creation of Formula One shoes. Um, and then went back to uni and finished the final thesis. And I wrote that with Nike around the topic, which is quite big today, which is like sustainability. And it was around consumer buying habits around sustainability. And are they buying a product because it's sustainable or not? And what influences their buying decision? Um, so that was quite interesting. Um, and then right after that, Puma offered me a job, uh, in the shoe factories in Vietnam. Um, so yeah, that was, I remember I ran in at Trafford, I ran a BMC race on a Tuesday night around one forty nine, 
And then Wednesday morning, I took a train down to London and then got on a plane to, to Asia. Um, and yeah, went to go and live in Asia. So yeah, I lived in Vietnam for a while, um, working for Puma, more on like the engineering shoe production side, learning all shoe factory stuff. And then they asked me to come back to the headquarters, um, work there for a few years. And then luckily enough, the, my original boss in Adidas, the Japanese guy, Puma hired him in the US to take over like the Puma US business. And he got there and he was like, Hey, Jordan, like no one here is a runner in the office. Like you need to come and help me. So yeah, he gave me a job to go and live in the US and it was like, so cool. I lived in Boston, obviously a massive running city. Um, joined the Heartbreakers, Heartbreak Hill Running Company. They'd just been founded with the guys there. Still have my, my bracelet here and helped them build up the Heartbreakers run crew and spread that around. And um, yeah, we went to the Chicago Marathon. I met my wife, the Chicago Marathon. Really cool. And then, yeah, another old boss asked me to come back to Germany, then to switch to Adidas. So yeah, that was like 2017 or so. Went back to Adidas and it was like, Half the job was in China, in Shanghai, and half was in Germany. So it was like back and forth between the two. Um, and then I'd actually met the the founder of On, Olivier, in 2011, when I lived in Vietnam, when they were just a startup, and I kind of kept in contact. And right around the end of 2020, he said, hey, we need to start a new innovation team, specifically for athletes. Would you come on board? And then you know, lead this team. Um, and then obviously I seen on was on quite the rise and I'd seen that they'd signed like Dathan Ritzenheim, Joe Klecker, Ollie Hoare, uh, Alicia Monson, like these pretty promising athletes who did not made it to the level they are right now, but they were pretty good. And obviously they were all running in like Nike dragonflies and so on. Um, and he's like, yeah, it's going to be a complete blank page. You can build up the team, footwear, apparel, everything bring all of your knowledge and hire all the people you need to make it all happen. So yeah, I went to my boss in Adidas and I told him um, about the opportunity and on. And he'd been in Adidas for like 35 years. He was quite a veteran in the industry. And he was like, yeah, you can work the next 20 years in Adidas. You're not going to get an opportunity like this. So with my Adidas hat on, I'm telling you, don't go because we need you here. But in reality, yeah, you need to take the job and you need to go for it. So Adrian Leek, the, he was the general manager in Adidas running and stuff. He is like a legend of the industry. He said, Monday morning, I want to see a resignation letter. You've got to take this job. Yeah, so he helped me out a lot. And then, yeah, I arrived in on right after Tokyo, after like a, a like six-month non-compete period where yeah. I became, became a professional golfer and uh, got my mind ready to attack the whole on um, challenge, yeah. That's really... The last part, I mean, that's incredible, that section there. Your CV is really niche and tailored towards understanding the consumer's needs, but also the knowledge behind shoes. That is incredible. But that last part about Adrian Leakes, was it? Adrian Leak, yeah. He's just yeah. retired. He's just retired now, yeah. Such a wholesome story that, like, he made that call to say that, you know, I want you to stay because I'm an Adidas guy. By the end of the day, you're never going to get this opportunity again. Like that was so pinnacle for your development and your career because you could still have been at Adidas right now doing the job that you was doing then. And I think that's really cool, man. I think it says a lot about the man to say that. Yeah, I mean, he was also 
in the early 80s he ran low 28 in the 10k and he was like um he went to some world champs and so when he's actually from wales but he after uni in the us he stayed in the us for a few decades but yeah he's a legend i had some quite some run-ins with him over the years as a competitor yeah. and then finally when he hired me uh he was a uh a big mentor for me so for him to because he's he's like he's the biggest adidas guy you'll ever meet so yeah, it was it was really special for him to uh, say that and tell me just to tell me you know I wouldn't do it, but yeah, how it goes. Yeah. So you're now on running. You're now you've got this blank canvas. You know you've got these few athletes that they've signed. That obviously big names don't get us wrong, but compared to where you are today as a brand on the on the global stage of track and field, different different hymn sheet. Must have been very exciting. But for our listeners, what is your job title? Okay, so my job title is I'm the leader of the athlete innovation team. Um, that's what the job title. Okay. But that's, I mean, across different departments, maybe there's 25 to 30 people covering designers, engineers, sports scientists, um, all types of different experts. And our job as a team, I mean, I'm just kind of oversee the team, let's say, but the job of the team is to create footwear apparel accessories specifically for athletes to help them in their training so they can train harder in the recovery so they can recover faster and then in the competition so it's not just competition products it's it's all three phases um yeah so we need experts in all of them and it's i call it like this three by three matrix like footwear apparel accessories and then training recovery and racing because you know 99 percent of the time is training and recovery and only one percent is actually in competition so um what you've probably seen like with the Ingebrigtsen model, Norwegian training, it's all about standing on the start line as fit as possible. And usually in the the races these days, it's the fittest athlete who wins, not the athlete with the best kick. No, you're right. Well, that's our mentality as well for product creation. Yeah. Brilliant. It's almost like the product creation's matching the training ethos, right? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I, I tell my team, I'm like, look, our athletes, they want to win the Olympics, gold medal. So us as designers or engineers we need to be like the olympic gold medal caliber of designer and athletes and i installed some principles in the very beginning which we need to follow which is clearly like with not just drawing shoes and clothes aesthetically it's about the insight from the athlete like what do you feel when the bell rings in a 1500 where are you in the pack where's your foot striking the ground like what, what muscles are broken what are fresh like how can we create products in for the specific situations? And um, yeah, we need to pitch, put ourselves in the athlete's shoes and bodies at that moment. Or what happens on a the Sunday long run of a 120 mile week in the middle of winter? You know, how can we keep the athlete fresh for waking up Monday morning and the body doesn't know the difference between Sunday and Monday? You know, like and I got you back there. Yeah, lost you a sec. No, that's really interesting insight into how you're thinking as a brand because, and I like that bit you said, 99% of of, tra- of athletics, if you like, it, it is the training, it is the recovery. You know, as a, as a track fan, unless you're absolutely obsessed with the sport, the only bits you do see are on TV and they're what racing for, you know, minutes at a time, whereas the actual preparation that goes into it is hours and hours and hours. Uh, also, that's, that's such a cool insight. Um, Dawn, I'm just going to let my dog in and then we'll finish this uh, next section. Sorry, mate. Okay. Let's talk about a period of time. In fact, I want to ask where, where you would, you may have been on running at this time. So at the time when Nike were 
let's be honest, let's put it, let's put it out there. They were miles ahead in terms of innovation on a public standpoint. So what the public saw with yeah. bogeys, full percent shoe, uh, a Monza, sub two, tenth, etc. At that time, would you have been on running? Uh, I was in Adidas at that time. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Okay. So let's fast forward to the point where you join on running, you've got this blank canvas. Okay. You're off the back of all of these fast shoes that are going on around the world. And you've got athletes that are running in dragonflies that are blacked out. Whatever. That was quite an interesting time for the sport. Talk us through what the early conversations were like around the table when it was like, right team, how do we bridge the gap? I mean, I can tell you back to Adidas because it, it was the same conversation. Um, it was a bit different structure of decision makers, but it was the same conversation. So the conversation was, you know, that the sport's moved in on a product level. Everyone's getting faster from Kipchoge down to your four-hour marathon runner. And there's a clear reason why it is. And it's it's mainly down to product. Um, and it's clearly the product just did a few simple things. So in the past, everyone looked in one direction, which is like, lighter is faster so more minimal shoes and so on and they didn't look at a few simple insights which is like what happens physically during a marathon like your body if it's 42k that's if you've got a two meter stride length that means it's twenty one thousand times that your body hits the ground you know and that so why are your muscles breaking oh because you're hitting the ground twenty one thousand times that's an insight but no one was designing or engineering a solution for that I mean, maybe they tried with like more cushion shoes, but the material wasn't there. Maybe P-Bax wasn't available. Maybe it was too heavy with EVA and different stuff. Um, so there's a lot of insights which were not being looked at. People were just looking in the wrong direction. And I think when Nike made them shoes, it was clear what the insight was in the end and how to come up with a solution. Um, I mean, back then I was not working in Adidas running. I was on the lifestyle side doing stuff in China, but as a big runner and uh pushing the running team like hey what's the solution here they just didn't want to be seen to copy nike and they have to come up with their own thing eventually and they did in the end uh but when we come to on i basically took up all of my uh i'm going to call it anger and frustration and not being able to implement my ideas at adidas and just basically brought them to on and was just like boom this is what we're going to do and this is why we're going to do it because Physically, this is what's happening to the athlete. Psychologically, this is what happens to the athlete. And it didn't matter if it's an 800 meters or a marathon, like did we have clear insights of the mental, the physical, and um, then the solution you're gonna create to to build for that. So yeah, we just downloaded all of this insights and we got cracking on the product um, very quick. I mean, if you think Tokyo was August, 2021 and already Milrose Games was January, 2022. And there we already had two different spikes available with two different concepts. And then we had in March already a marathon shoe. Actually, this is the prototype here, which we had the guy run a 206 marathon in. Um, and Helen O'Beary ran a 104 half marathon in. So yeah, we had to act very quick based just on like knowledge and experience and insights that we currently had. We didn't have enough time to go deep scientifically to come up with future stuff. That's or what's happened now, which you will see in the Paris products. But yeah, essentially we just um, took all of that knowledge and experience from the past and implemented it into these these products with as simple methodology as possible based on what the athlete experiences. Yeah. Athlete experience. So I'm gonna ask that question after the next one because I because I've spoken to people like Tomo about 
that on and being part of the testing and feedback, et cetera. The gaps that we that I mentioned uh, years ago when Nike were out front and then other brands brand were starting to catch up or whatever, that that gap is up. It's ultimately been bridged now. A lot more brands are not only um, on a some form of level playing field in terms of innovation and tech, but also we look at a Diamond League now. Down the home straight at 1500 meters is an array of brands, and as a fan of the sport, I think it's wicked. I think I love to. It's it you know it's almost like ten different football teams you know flying down the home straight. That's wicked because it it gives such a diverse commercial opportunity for athletes in terms of sponsorships. What I want to understand is now the shoes are so advanced, and you know on a still innovating as other brands are. What are the main things that you're looking for, or looking at to improve to make an already fast shoe faster? I mean, it's not just a shoe, it's everything else around it. So training groups, coaching, nutrition advice, experts of recovery, um, picking races for athletes, which they're not going to get smashed in like the right level races, um, really long-term contracts for athletes so they can develop like the product is obviously in my team, but also the other aspect of the well-being of the athlete as well. Um, financial education for athletes when they get their first contract. Um, all of these things which make a bigger difference, frankly, than the shoe in the end. And um, that's what a lot of my time is spent on. Um, but if we want to speak purely about the product and how we keep moving that forward, I mean, one of the, the biggest leap Nike made was down to the material and the foam. You know, like if Peebacks foam didn't exist, making these shoes with like EVA or um, polyurethane or something, it's too heavy or it's not giving enough energy back. And that you could say, why didn't people run low to a wow marathons in like Hoka shoes back from years ago? And it's because the phone. So that does mean that there's opportunities in the future because we know from chemical engineering and so on that evolution of foams and different things like this is never going to end. There's always going to be something different which you can change. Um, now we have a little bit more guidelines, obviously the 40 millimeter rule between the athlete's foot and the ground, one stiff element and so on. So we a bit more in a box but i mean you can still maximize different areas um yeah i mean we can't stop like now we just got all of our spikes released and so on on mass markets and i know from brands i've worked in in the past they would leave them for like three years four years before updating them but we already are going to come back like next year with a fresh one for 2024 again for 2025 uh even again because we just want to have the best product for the athletes and if we've got something in the locker which we're working on which can benefit the athlete we're not just going to hold it back until it's right time at retail to to launch it you know so yeah product side it, it doesn't stop yeah you mentioned as well um that there's there's so much more that goes into making the athlete in the shoe faster and there was there was about four five six seven things that you mentioned there that package if you like that comprehensive package that you've got to give an athlete and say look we will give you all the tools that you need yes we'll give you the kit and the apparel but we, we will give you everything you need down to the financial advice around here's your contract here's the best way to manage that where does that expertise come from from a brand that for me was a startup like five seconds ago you know are, are there specific individuals that like are on headhunted to say look you've got the expertise come in and help us grow this package I'm just really intrigued because I've never heard someone speak like that, like, a, like sort of as you just sort of explained. Yeah, so I mean, imagine what my job was like two years ago when the only way I could convince an athlete to join on was showing them a PowerPoint of some sketches of a shoe which might be ready for their race next summer. 
you know so we were kind of forced to like what else can we help the athlete with so i was like basically signed george mills mario garcia romo yarrett nagus and ben flanagan based on like powerpoints of, of like products you know so then actually we had nicola spirig she's one of the triathletes and on she got an olympic gold in london and then a silver in rio uh chris thompson and we basically spoke to our athletes and we were like hey what are all the things you wished you had in your career the past 20 years which you you know now which you didn't know back then when you were growing up and so on so they give us all this insights and we're like hey how about when you retire you come and work in our team and implement all of this so now nicola retired just now so she's in our team sitting here in our office implementing all of this uh tomo maybe he retires and i don't know he just keeps going maybe it's two years three years whatever it is he's got a job waiting for him to join our team and implement all of that stuff he's already building it up now but then he's gonna have a full-time job after and we've got a few other athletes who come towards the end of the career with this huge wealth of experience and they're in our team now who are implementing this so we have a few different pillars um mentality psychology sports psychology expectation on an athlete the whole financial aspect then training environment so helping them find coaches and groups whether that's in our oac groups in europe us or australia or individual coaching things like uh connections of altitude 10 companies or training camps if they have to live in a city or if they're still in uni and so on and then the third pillar is all around recovery so what mattress do they sleep on um how is the light in their bedroom how far is their commute from like their apartment to the track or where they train can we help them find an apartment that they don't have to sit in a car half an hour each way or um and this is like um yeah we got a house now in san maritz as well we got 28 athletes there which is completely for free for our athletes so ollie hawk calls it the golden ticket um and it's yeah the extra services which may be what we said is when we sign athletes, we don't want to do the traditional way of you sign a contract and every six months you get a package of shoes and apparel at your doorstep and a huge boxes. And it's like, maybe see you at a race or maybe not. We don't want to do it that way. We want to have a good relationship with the athletes and that they can really be part of the product creation and be part of all of the extra stuff around. And yeah, we're trying to keep it like that. As we grow, it's difficult, you know, when we had 30 athletes, it was easy. So after this relationship, now we are five or six times bigger than that, like almost 200 athletes. So it's a bit more difficult, but um, yeah, I think it's really important to that the athlete feels the weight of the brand behind them and not that they just run with a logo on the chest. Brilliant. You mentioned that about the, the groups in OAC, obviously started off uh, with Ritz and Hines group. Uh, Ollie Hall, Morgan McDonald, uh, Jordy Beamish, the rest of the crew there. Then we saw the Europe group launch with uh, hometown pirate George Mills. If you haven't listened to the interview, you can click back. There's a little plug there. We interviewed him last week. And then most recently, the uh, the big Mzungo, uh, yeah. Crack Mushrooms group. I was in a cafe in Pedderton last week and uh, Ben Buckingham walked in. And I said to him, I said, oh, I get on in the on group, mate. You know, based out in Europe. And I was like, oh, shit, no, you're all the... You're the Aussie group. I got that one wrong. Sorry, mate. But uh, also, I mean, you, you say you got it wrong, but he's been. This is a good thing. He's been training in Boulder with the team, and now he's been in. Oh, now he's going to Samaritan with the team. That's so, right. Yeah. That's why I got it wrong. That's why. 
Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll take that. But results have been fantastic. Don't get this wrong. You know, there's so there's such a different dynamic between the the American circuit, the Australian circuit. I used to live in Sydney, so I can always sympathise with Australian athletes where their track season is just almost kind of non-existent, really, compared to what they can come and do over in Europe and America, and then throw in the indoor season in there as well. But when those conversations were being had around, right, guys, let's let's have a pro group with Ritz and Heiner's coach. Let's do it in Europe. Let's do it in Australia. Have those results surpassed expectations or were they always, are they, are they sort of where you expected to get to? Uh, mate, it's, it's 10 times further than we could have it imagined. The goal, the goal with the, the first group, which was the only group planned initially, was to get the first athletes to Paris Olympics as the first big championship. And then already in Tokyo, you had um, Ollie, Joe, Alicia, and Alicia Konaschek, Poland, on the steeple, um, directly from Dathan's group. Um, Morgan McDonald, he he went, but he was training with uh, Joe Bossart's group at the time. Um, it, it's way beyond any of the original expectations. But if you've never met him, Dathan Ritzenhain is like the most engrossed, hungry, like he's like got kids, so he's like the best father. And he's this mega competitor and he just fuses all this together. Uh, and he knows what it takes to win uh, physically, mentally. And he just sets this the bar for the group and um, the meticulous way of doing it. And it's just created a culture of a team environment, which is um, the output is just like the success, which you see, you know, like on, on Diamond Leagues and Champion. We haven't won any medals there yet. I mean, Helen got a silver on the 10,000, but she was still training in Kenya at the time. But the championships are going to come, but um, you can see with the times, the progression, it's it's unbelievable, like the, what we could have ever imagined, yeah. And the UK is one place where these groups haven't quite landed. We've seen we've seen versions of it, you know, across a few different brands over the years, and there's there's, there's a couple of little groups here and there, but so not to the level that we see in America with, with OAC and Bowman and Oregon Track Club and, and you know, Team New Balance and all of that. Why do you think that is? I think there's a few there's a few things. Um, I mean, where should we start? I mean, we start with the athlete, the level of the athletes. If you say, say you get your first pro contract, you might be 21, 22. Like, what level is that athlete? All of these groups, whether it's the on groups, the Nike groups, um, they get to choose the best NCAA talent who you can already see the trajectory is that they are going to make the Olympics. That's no question. How high they finish, that's what hopefully they can be elevated to. In the UK, you've only got then essentially UK athletes because getting foreigners to move to the UK, I mean, now with Brexit, it's very difficult. But in the beginning, so your, your pool is only British athletes. How many British athletes make Olympic teams? I mean, it's it's quite small. So to see like the ultimate success, it's already a very small pool. Then if you look at like the mechanics behind it of what makes it, makes a good team, Obviously, you need a high level of athletes, coaches, and so on. Pretty successful athletes in the UK at that age. I mean, this is just my opinion. They've obviously been with a, a smaller group or a coach who's took them to that level. And they're pretty reluctant to switch coaches to the unknown, let's say. Unless it's like the federation, which maybe is paying them somehow. And they've kind of come and gone and failed with all the different federation coaches over time. Um, yeah, so I think that... The only way is if a brand with like 
quite a lot of money, makes a big investment with a long-term project, and they can attract the talent, which is capable of not just making major championships, but doing well there, that they can foster this culture of success um, on this higher level. And this is not to say, hey, if you're 21 years old and you've you've not broken 340 yet or 14 minutes that you can't be in them groups. But if you do want to compare this successful groups like Bowerman or OAC and so on, that's just the level of the athlete who who is making it like that. Um, and yeah, I think the answer would be, yeah, a big, big um, investment from a brand setting up something which is not just, you know, it, it's got to be very high level training um, environment some really good athletes paying some foreign athletes to come in and support it and really believing in this athlete for four or five years to make it um if you look across europe there's a lot of all the athletes who are making it if you look i mean look at the top 25 in europeans they all kind of have their individual coaches and they all just go and train in sierra nevada font ramo san Moritz, or kenya none of them really stay in their home country too much and when they go to those places they're just running with huge groups of Kenyans or each other in like Sierra Nevada and so on. And it's basically the training group around them, even though it might not be a big brand sponsored group. It's like the mass of athletes at that high level around them is pushing them higher and higher. I mean, if you stay in the UK and you don't get that massive high caliber athletes, I think it's difficult to push and make that progression just on yourself or just with the coach beside you on the bike you need the mass kind of um, the big wave to take you take with you. I think a really big opportunity in the UK is for example, on like 800 meter running because altitude is not critical for that event. And we have a lot of like the way that the, the old school trainer model of coaches in the UK and high school and university for that middle distance aspect, it's not mega volume. It's a bit more speed endurance based. I think it lends itself that traditional UK type of training model to the 800 meters. I've seen a little bit with, um, who's the guy, the run yard, Matt Yates, for example, what he does like on the more middle distance aspect with some relatively like decent success, I would say. Um, I mean, all the guys, they probably hate each other, like, cause they're all competing for the same three spots. But imagine like on the women's side, I think in the Tokyo Olympic trials, wasn't it like all eight women in the final had broken two minutes that year. And all eight of them, all eight of them trained completely separate. And in the men's, I think we had 12 guys or 13 guys, 146.2 or quicker. And only two of the lads trained together. And like, you wonder why they don't run 143 or 157 when they all just train on their own with their coach on the bike next to them. They need to work together. Yeah, as simple as that. Whilst we've seen, uh, whilst we think of, you know, all the reasons why there's not a lot of, high quality professional groups in the UK, which makes a lot more sense now after hearing that. What we have seen over the past three to five years, and especially post pandemic, is a massive meter uh, a massive rise in more community based run clubs and crews. Especially speaking from London where I live, I said this probably about a year ago. You could go to a different run crew night every single night of the week now. There's a different one Monday through Sunday, which if you if you market you know if you mapped it out correctly you could probably go to a different branded run club every single night in London. Why do you think there's been such a rise in when we think about athletics as a whole, which is 
struggling a little bit in the UK. Let's be honest, he's, he's struggling. There's a lot, you know, in terms of club athletics and league athletics, you know, I'm sure you've been in part of that during your career. But there's a massive rise in participation in community running, crew running, and the brands have started to jump on board on that. I, th- I see it. I don't want to sound bad, but it's, I see it as two different sports. Like one, like when you're running, competing on the track at such a high level and you've maybe grown up for that, the barrier to entry is quite difficult. Where like run crew, you just, you might be new to a city. You've just moved there for a job. You want to meet some people. You just show up, go for easy run and have some beers. It's so easy. Whereas you want to imagine if you're like 25 and you want to go and be a 800 meter runner, where, where do you start? You know? It's so difficult to know and it's so intimidating where the run crew, it's easy, it's fret, like, I love it, you know, like, I met my wife through, like, a run crew, you know, like, my whole life changed, basically, in Boston with the Heartbreakers and so on, and um, in Nuremberg, where I used to live in Germany, we set up a, a run crew, and now we have people doing Ironman triathlon on the weekend who, like, four years ago did their first ever jog, you know, like, this community aspect is unparalleled when it comes to track and field uh elite level because it's it's so different the the entry and what it, what it takes um i think running's become easier like with all the products and it's it's, it's really cool you know to be seen in run crews and get the latest gears and so on it's i love like you know going all the marathons around the world and meeting these random people like-minded people it's uh this connections they're really cool um it's like a bit of a lifesaver for our sport i feel our sport's very difficult to do. Running is a really difficult sport. The sport no one wants to do when they do other sports. The fitness aspect of running. Um, but this, the social aspect of run crews is, um, I love it. It's amazing. It's given me a new life in this sport, you know. As you get older and the time starts slowing down, you think, oh, I'll just stop. But run crews, having beers and uh, having fun is um, prolonged uh, definitely definitely my running career i would say yeah yeah i think you, you speak for many there that i mean so i mean so many people at different run crews coming from the background of club athletics and running training you know every, every night of the week to run faster you then meet the runner that is like i don't care about running fast like i'm just here my mental health or i'm here to get out of the house for the night you know i think it's such it it adds such different reasons to run than just running faster and i yeah. suppose that when we think that for most brands the aim is to sell shoes mm-hmm. are now thousands and thousands and thousands of runners that need running shoes that maybe weren't running three or four years ago and they're not interested in club athletics or running a pb at bmc at trafford they're interested in just going for a 5k and then having a pint i think it, i think it, i think it's a really cool concept yeah i mean i remember we were building the running strategy for adidas for the five-year strategy from 2020 to 2025 and 100% of the sports marketing budget was focused on medal contenders at the Olympic Games. Wow. And I, I, I was like, guys, you got the complete wrong idea here. I'm like, did, like people don't buy you, your Adidas running shoes because they see a gold medalist at the Olympics. That's a snap. That's a tiny moment in time. Like you need to invest way bigger into communities. And they started the Adidas runners a little bit before that. I'm like, you need like more grassroots, unbranded help. Do it for the being true to the sport and not just to get your logo there. You know, like it's um, and now we see that the critical mass that movement is it's huge and it's it's amazing. And uh, yeah, I love being part of it, man. Like, yeah, you know, I used to just be like the geeky runner. 
and uh, you know, running track. And now it's it's cool to be a runner now, you know, like to be a in a run crew or even a run crew is maybe a bit niche, but like just yeah. Yeah. Mates, group of mates. What involvement do you do in your job do you have with sort of the run crew community side of the sport? Yeah, so I make it the point, okay. When we go to Diamond Leagues, now we've just been in Oslo last week, uh Paris a few days before. I can't remember where we were before that. Hey, the, the, what was that? Vienna. Yeah, Vienna was in between. I can't remember where we all were the different days, but um, yeah, the, we got to bring everything together. You got to have the top athletes who is going to be there anyway. The local run crew, who is that's their community, that's their home city. The local retailers who is like selling our product, wherever we can connect with them, and obviously leverage like the huge event of being in that big city for that that moment of time, whether it's like a major marathon or a diamond league or whatever it is. And we got to fuse all of those things together and we got to show that to the run crew and the general runner that the athletes are just normal people and that they can be inspired by them and chat to them. And we got to show our athletes that, hey, uh, making the Olympics is not the only thing in this sport. Look at this people here who couldn't, who are sitting on the couch and now they're like, their, their Olympics is like, you know, breaking 25 minutes for 5K. You know, and they're pushing their body and so on and trying to achieve their goal. So it's fusing all of these things together in a cool way. And the brand, like now on, we're just in the back seat, just facilitating this. Yeah. And we're not there to get like brand clout and whatever. It's just purely to facilitate the the culture of the sport and let the let the rest just happen, you know? Yeah. You mentioned that, uh, obviously, couldn't remember whether you was in Paris, Vienna or somewhere else. There's obviously a lot of traveling in your job, working across various sports and with athletes and that. Uh, at the height of the season at the moment, obviously Paris 2024 is next. We say it's next season, but it, it's mer- it merges into fun because it's almost like, well, athletes need to perform now so that they can then qualify for next year, etc. Do you get adequate downtime or is it a case of maybe like an off-season type of thing similar to an athlete? I mean, I hope my wife doesn't listen, but um, uh, for me, for me, it never stops, man. My brain's always going, and the people I work with, I, I like to think at least that they're they're kind of the same in this crazy world. Um, we kind of see ourselves as like if we're like the Ferrari Formula One team, and the car breaks between qualifying and the race, and you have to stay up all night to fix the car that the driver can drive the next morning. It's not like a problem for us. It's like it's just what we do and we're hungry and we're excited and we just want to see the athlete or the driver on the podium at the end of the race. Um, that's a bit the moment we're in right now uh, in terms of the intensity because we know that race is going to happen the next day and it's on us to, we're accountable to build that Formula One car or that product for the athlete. Um, and what can we do between right now and the race as much as possible? Um, that's our job and uh, it's why we do it, yeah. And it's a, it's a privilege. And um, yeah, I realized that because when I was a runner, I didn't realize how fit I was or how good I was. And it's gone now and I can't get it back. But this job, I'm not making that mistake, man. I know how cool this job is and how privileged I am. And the situation we're in right now is a brand. And I've been in companies with 10 layers of bosses where your ideas don't make it. And this one, my boss is like the founder of the company. And he just says, just make it happen. So... I've got hold of it with both fans, man, and we're, we're fucking going. We're going, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, you can drop an F-bomb on this one. So yeah. <laughs> that's good. You can, you can, I can feel your passion coming through, which is excellent. And that brings me on to my next question. Mm-hmm. Outside of Shack and Field, 
and sport. Do you have any other passions? Um, I mean, I like to travel. <laughs> Amazing guest. Uh, it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, learning languages and different cultures and so on. Um, my wife is very much the same way. She has got like her parents are Asian and she grew up in the US and Canada and now we live in Europe and um, I think last year we went to almost every continent like Hawaii and Africa and everywhere and just our passion for traveling and meeting different people it's like I don't want to sound all like sad or something here but I feel like you only live once and if you have the opportunity like you said earlier I don't know the story but you said you lived in Sydney and um, if you have the opportunity then you've got to travel and I mean I grew up on like a council estate in Birkenhead and that's like I mean, the world used to end at the end of our council estate. Um, and when I realized it went much further, you shouldn't stop. You just got to get out there. And um, yeah, that's that's what we do outside of it. And um, yeah, just get involved and take advantage of the situations that we're in. And um, that's all we do really, yeah. Me and my wife, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, and I'll store some brownie points if she does listen. So uh, we'll yeah. edit this bit. One question I, uh, well, I've got a question for you that has been sent in actually, and now I want you to figure out who asked this. Okay. Well, who asked me to ask you it? Who do you think this was? Do you manage to get speedboat rides when you go, uh, speedboat rides when you go to a Diamond League? This person is. <laughs> yeah, so we actually did get on a speedboat when we were in Oslo. Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. There was a guy, Per Gunner, he's the head of On in Scandinavia, and he said they show up at the this dock there and we thought we were going on like a ferry like across the Mersey or something and he showed up on a speedboat and he was the captain of the ship and uh yeah I think maybe it was Ollie Laws or uh Joe Joe Wells maybe asked you to ask that but yeah whether it, yeah I don't want to like boast about stuff and all of that but it's just it's so cool like <laughs> it's just it's just it's really cool hey yeah guys yeah just change his bond lock I get it I get it Okay. Hey, I'm telling I'm telling you the last one as well. When you go to Diamond Leagues, you know what's really cool is like they give they give you these little meal vouchers, and it's always in like five star hotels, and the food is always amazing. So yeah, you sit there and like you sit next to like Yarmouth Kelchecker or Carson Borholm, and you're just munching away on all this amazing food and chatting. Yeah, it's not not what I imagined when I was sitting on the bus the McDonald's League, you know, twenty years ago. That's the side of the sport we don't see. I've seen it a little bit myself. Um... Sometimes I've been in certain situations or in certain rooms and I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, this is mental. Like there's so-and-so or this is going on. I remember once I got, I got a VIP treatment to it, to, to the London Diamond League. And I was sat there eating, you know, my scone and my cup of tea and freaking jam. And I looked across to my missus and I went, hang on a second. I was moaning about track and field yesterday. I bloody love this. <laughs> yeah. That's wicked. Yeah. Oh dear. Okay, well, one last question before we end a quick fire round. I'm excited for a quick fire round because you're the first person that I'm going to be asking these questions to that isn't a professional athlete. Okay. So you're actually our first guest on the podcast that isn't, yeah, a pro athlete. So it's been a nice, nice change. But are there any, uh, what, what are you currently working on, uh, on that you can tell me that will excite us track and field fans? Or, I mean, the, the evolution of all this spike. So here we've got the first ever handmade spike we made. It just in our little lab. And then something from like the Milrose games um, before. And then there's some 347 mile spikes and so on. So yeah, the evolution of these products and 
if you want eagle eyes, you might already see in some diamond leagues how they're looking. Um, but yeah, see everything attractive. We get yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, faster products to come. Love that. Yeah, quick fire round, Jordan. I've got five questions. We ask all of our guests these questions. I've had to tailor them slightly because obviously you're not a pro athlete, so I have to yeah. take one sided. But just first thing that pops into your head, don't be don't be shy. Just just shout it out. So. If you had a magic wand, what's one thing that you change in athletics? Mm, consume how you consume the sport. It's way too big and way too complicated. It needs to be straightforward. Yeah, the masters four comp or the, the majors four competitions and the best is the best. Yeah. So I saw a tweet this morning actually off the back of Western States hundred, and it was. Yeah. Um, there was an article on the Guardian. It was the first time the Guardian had done an article on an ultra and sort of viewed it as a actual competition, not like a like a crazy challenge. And someone said, "Wouldn't it be cool if we could have four majors across the year in the ultra world?" And it does sound really cool. Yeah, just simplify our sport, make the big ones matter, and um, we got to draw the line somewhere. If you make it into them, you can be the best. And yeah. You never hear about the 200th tennis player in the world. You only hear about the top five, and maybe that's the future. I don't know. Yeah, that's bang on. Uh, what's the best thing about working within professional athletics? The people, because it's working in athletics is a tough sport, and you don't get... It's not like football or these big, massive paid type of things, so everyone in there loves what they do, and they are all got skin in the game to improve it. So the people... What's the worst thing about working in athletics? The size of the sport, and it's very difficult to consume and to get new people into it. And I feel we have an amazing sport, but the barriers to entry are so high um, that it's very intimidating for a lot of people to take part in it in our sport. Brilliant. And this is uh, I've been excited. I've been looking forward to asking this one. What's a harsh truth the running world needs to hear? Oh. Oh, just because a fast athlete wears a brand's product doesn't mean the product is the best. That's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. And to finish this interview off, Jordan, what's one thing that you would have liked to have achieved in your life in 10 years' time? I would like that we've created, oh, in my life or in this job, because in my life, it's, it's maybe different. Nice. We'll go with both. Start with the job first. Okay, in the job, it's that we and our whole team, my whole team here, everyone feels really a part of everything we do because I'm always the guy on podcasts and here and there. And there's a huge, massive team behind who make all of this happen. And I want them to feel the pride I feel when the athlete wins the, the gold medal. Yeah. And in your life in 10 years' time? Um, that Everton could finally play in the Champions League and I can dust the passport off and see us play in the Camp Nou against Barcelona. Well, all I'm going to say is my, my Luton Town has just been promoted to the Premier League. So if they can do that, then I can definitely believe that Everton can make Champions League because I never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. Yeah. Maybe George Mills' younger brother is the guy to take us there. Who knows? Yeah, yeah big up. Come on, Stan. Just notch up after the minute. Who knows? Jordan, it's been brilliant, mate. Thanks so much for your time on the show today. It's been such an insightful chat and uh, best of luck for the rest of the season and uh, hopefully catch up with you soon. Yeah, really appreciate it. Keep doing all the good stuff for Trackster and uh, yeah, 
We'll see you soon. Cheers. Thank you for joining us this week for another episode of the Traxter podcast where we talk all things running. The highs, the lows, the ugly bits and of course everything in between. Thank you to our guest Jordan for his time today on the show. And if you have enjoyed today's listen, please give us a review and head over to our Instagram at Traxter to keep up to date with everything that we're up to. I've been Lloyd, your host for the day. I'll catch you down the road for a run and a chat. But in the meantime, have a cracking week, runners.